Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Greetings and welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Another week, another spate of lunacy in the news highlighting just what sad shape our culture is in. Here's a quick sampling. A photography exhibition at the European Parliament building in Brussels depicted Jesus Christ delivering the Sermon on the Mount while surrounded by gay men dressed in leather bondage outfits. A Swedish member of Parliament, a member of the country's left party, said during the inauguration of the exhibit that the art, quote, shows that our societies have evolved in the past 25 years regarding LGBT rights, unquote. Yeah, no, I think it shows that the West has degenerated in the past 25 years into a culture that has rejected traditional faith and elevated a religion of the self instead, one which reduces humans in all their complexity and their wonder and their dignity to mere sexual beings. And it's a religion centered on one's sexual identity instead of one's immortal soul. Along those lines, here's another sad news item. One of the four cover models for the latest Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue is a transsexual pop star. All right, enough said about that. Speaking of trans madness, trans activists did their level best over the weekend to hijack Mother's Day, claiming that men can be mothers too. Sorry, not mothers, but birthing people. And whining that there isn't a day celebrating non-binary folks. That's folks spelled the woke way with an X at the end. These are just a few of the signs that the West is in a period of late-stage decadence, and that if we don't recover some measure of cultural sanity, if we don't get back to at least striving to be grounded in truth and virtue and faith, then we are a doomed civilization. Part of recovering our cultural sanity, as I just suggested, is recovering our declining faith. A new poll from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University provided some evidence recently that the Christian Foundation of America is giving way to syncretism, a mix of bits and pieces from other worldviews, including secular humanism, postmodernism, Eastern mysticism, and Marxism. A similar study from a year ago revealed that 88% of those polled had adopted syncretism, while just 6% had a biblical worldview. Using two dozen measures of beliefs and behaviors, the team at Arizona Christian University, led by director George Barna, discovered that millennials, in other words, those in the age range of 25 to 39, were the generation least closely connected to biblical Christianity. And by biblical Christianity or biblical worldview, what the director Barna is referring to is kind of a seven-point list here. Number one, believing God is the creator and eternal ruler of the world. Number two, believing that everyone is a sinner in the eyes of God. Number three, believing in God's Son, Jesus Christ, is the only means to salvation from God's wrath that is otherwise due to sinners. Number four, believing that the Bible is God's Word. Number five, believing that His Word is absolute moral truth. Number six, believing that His purpose for us consists of knowing, loving, and serving Him. And number seven, believing that success in this life consists of consistent obedience to God. Now, Barna wrote that millennials had largely bought into the secular lie of personal truth rather than biblical truth. In fact, just two out of every 50 millennials 
hold to Barna's definition of a biblical worldview. This lack of belief didn't serve them too well during the recent COVID pandemic, according to Barna. He writes that, quote, Related studies conducted by the Cultural Research Center during the pandemic suggest that the millennials' rejection of biblical Christianity did not serve them well. Three-quarters reported lacking purpose and meaning in life. A large majority reported feeling bereft of deep, healthy interpersonal relationships. More than half reported being impaired by mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, fear, and suicidal thoughts. Barna asked, where were the churches during the pandemic? He writes, the last three years have been a time of high anxiety for tens of millions of adults. It was an ideal time for the Christian church to provide wise guidance and emotional calm. Unfortunately, most churches agreed to the government's dictate that they close their doors and remain mostly silent. That left an unprepared populace to follow the primary form of leadership that was available to them, government perspectives and policies, unquote. So, very interesting poll results, and they don't bode well for the future of faith in this country, and don't give us a whole lot of hope about the kind of leadership that we need from our churches either, with few exceptions. One of those exceptions, I will say, is my guest today, Pastor Lucas Miles. He's the author of an important, brand new book called Woke Jesus, about the hijacking of Christianity by a false messiah and a leftist agenda. He's here to talk about that book and about the state of Christianity today. So please stay with us here at the intersection of politics and culture. You don't want to miss this interview. And don't forget to subscribe to The Right Takes so that you don't miss any other important conversations we're having here. And remember, if you like what you hear, please leave a review. Don't touch that dial. My guest today at the intersection of politics and culture is a writer, speaker, film producer, and president of the Influence Network. That's spelled with a capital N, Fluence, Influence Network. He's also the lead pastor of Influence Church, the host of the Lucas Miles Show, and the host of Epic TV's Church and State. He also happens to be the author of the brand new book, Woke Jesus, The False Messiah Destroying Christianity, which I highly recommend. Lucas Miles, welcome to the Right Take Podcast. Hey Mark, thanks for having me. Lucas. How about if we begin with you giving us a little bit of a backstory about yourself, who you are, and how you found yourself doing what you do, and also tell us a little bit about Influence Church and what the focus is there. Yeah, so uh, I'm a pastor. I've been started preaching actually at the age of 17, so I've been doing this quite a while. Uh, I'll be 44 this year, and uh, actually been the senior pastor of Influence Church and the president of the Influence Network uh, since its inception. Uh, the Influence Church was planted in 2004. Uh, so we've been uh, this next year will be uh, I think this fall actually is 20 years for us. Uh, and, you know, really in today's climate and culture, um, a, a senior pastor being at a church for 20 years isn't I'm finding is not very common. And so um, I've been very blessed to be here. And uh, honestly, every single day of ministry here seems like it gets better. Our church is uh, uh, doing great. So we're located just outside of South Bend, Indiana, uh, near the University of Notre Dame. And uh, although Indiana is a uh, you know, triple majority red state, uh, very conservative. Our particular county uh, is is been um, 
uh, sort of a leftist stronghold for some time. And so a lot of people might know the name Mayor Pete Buttigieg was the mayor of South Bend for some time. And so there's a, there's kind of a, a long leftist history in this area, which I'm sure has influenced some of the uh, um, some of the stances that I've taken, really being bold against some of the ideology that we're seeing come out of the left today. Um, I, I, in addition to the local church, the Influence Network is involved in everything from, um, uh, you know, uh, publishing, product creation. Um, uh, you mentioned the media on things like Church and State on Epoch Times. It's a partnership with Influence as well. Uh, and so very involved in kind of just uh, uh, trying to be on the front lines of, of Christian media and ensuring that we're getting um, uh, both pastors and, and other um, you know, just, uh, you know, Christians really of all, of all uh, shapes and sizes, so to speak, uh, the resources and the information they can to be successful in communicating their faith and to really be able to defend um, who they are in Christ in, this, in the culture that we're in today. Fantastic. Uh, let's talk about the state of Christianity today, the big picture. I think a lot of people are aware that Christianity is, is in decline, at least in terms of church membership and attendance and even intensity of belief, and not just in America, but all across the Western world. There's a lot of discussion about why that might be. And before we get into the meat of the argument of your book, let me ask you, what's your take on why Christianity seems to be fading in cultural and spiritual significance, especially among younger generations? Yeah, I think we have a little bit of the perfect storm uh, that took place that, that really set up where we are today. You look back at the seeker-sensitive movement that came out of the you know 80s into the early 90s, and they that movement did a tremendous job of making converts, but a very poor job in making disciples. And that put us in a position where I think there was essentially a generation of people that were trying to raise their children uh, with virtually no foundation in the word um, in order to make the seeker-sensitive movement as palatable as possible to onboard people into their Christian life as easily as they could they had to make some cho- well they made some choices i don't know as though they had to make some choices but they made a choice and that choice was by really removing the difficult aspects to discipleship and the word of god from the process so it was very quick to get people on board with team jesus um, and they didn't have to go through all the steps of of lordship that i think that that scripture actually presents and what that what that did is it it created a, an environment to where very few people actually knew the word of God, and they as a result they were very few of them were actually able to train that next generation in this. And so then we have this next generation that grows up really without any foundation in the word, and they became really perfect uh, um, soil for the progressive church and for uh, postmodernism, for um, leftism, and and you know all the other expressions of that ideology to really be planted, and I think to come in and, and essentially sort of hijack um, uh, uh, those that were part of the Christian faith and really take them into a, a in a very different direction. I think another part of the problem has to be the fact that Christians are so demonized in popular culture that they're rarely, if ever, depicted in movies or TV shows as anything other than hypocritical or bigoted and intolerant or sometimes just flat out evil. There are literally no shows in which the main character is a man or a woman for whom Christianity is a positive, meaningful part of who they are. And that's been a problem that goes back decades. Would you agree that pop cultures had a major impact on Christians becoming, shall we say, increasingly marginalized? Yeah, I, I think we've seen you know certainly a fair share of that. Hollywood has has been very good at making Christians the butt, you know, the kind of the brunt of the joke, and 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 I think that um, in in most cases you're correct. I mean, that certainly seems to have been the norm. 
I am encouraged that we are starting to see some some individuals who have stepped up and offered a little bit of defense uh, against uh, against some of that today or defense for Christians today. Uh, I think of people like Chris Pratt. Uh, also, I don't believe he's a Christian himself, but um, uh, the guy who played Dwight on The Office was also an outspoken uh, um, uh, advocate sort of against the, the uh, demonization of Christians in, in popular culture and and so, you know, it, it's, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think that there are some, some notable uh, celebrities who their faith is very important to them, uh, whether or not and to what degree they've been affected by uh, what I would call in this new book, the woke Jesus versus the biblical Christ, probably yet to be seen. And so that's going to have to play out a little bit more. But I think that that definitely helps shape part of, of where we are today. Yeah, and on that topic, the topic of the culture wars, many people are starting to catch on to some of the radical left's concepts and strategies and ideologies, some of which are starting to become household words now, like cultural Marxism, uh, critical race theory, wokeness. And thanks to the pandemic, uh, if you could thank the pandemic for anything, uh, thanks to the pandemic, a lot of people are waking up to the subversive impact that these movements are having in the field of education. But I would bet that not as many people are aware of the subversive impact that they're having within the Christian church. And that, of course, is the topic of your book, Woke Jesus. Uh, you write that woke Christianity is, quote, a massively woven, deeply confusing tapestry of lies that few have properly dismantled well enough for the rest of us to comprehend the full extent of their error, unquote, uh, which is what your book does, actually. You actually dismantle things very articulately. A couple of the early chapters in your book lay out the really interesting history behind this tapestry of lies, a, a history that stretches all the way back to the first or second century after Christ. Can you, maybe this is an impossible question, but can you give us kind of a quick sketch of, of a couple of the intellectual threads that are part of that tapestry of lies that have led to this woke transformation of the church? Absolutely. And, you know, as I think you're implying here, it is certainly a vast topic and so I, I've you know we'll probably just scratch the surface on it but but to maybe help provide a little bit more framework around there I think in more modern centuries so uh, you know really post enlightenment uh, 1700s uh, we're gonna see this undergirding of Marxism being the the really driving um, engine that's that's leading us to where and pushing us to where we are today in this general framework framework of wokeism that we're seeing. Uh, in the book, I actually go back and I start with with the rise of Gnosticism during the first century. And I have a quote from uh, an early church father, Irenaeus, and he makes the point that that the reason why the first century church, church was not able to fully refute Gnosticism, which was basically a, a uh, sort of a, a plagiarized uh, amalgamation uh, uh, form of Christianity that, um, uh, that, was, that was being... Um, uh, they, they were sort of uh, uh, merging themselves in with and hiding themselves within within the first century church that these these Gnostics were were proclaiming um, salvation by Christ, but they didn't believe that Christ was God in the flesh. They denied the Trinity. They they believed that Jesus actually came to save us from the uh, systemic oppression, if you will, that the Father subjected mankind to through the creation. So we start seeing some similar things to what wokeism presents in in sort of a, a maybe a more spiritualized version. And and so that that impacted thinkers like Hegel 
and Kant and and Marx that that really you know and Marx of course was the one that we point to that that really uh, uh, you know gives birth to this this uh, um, ideology which was he sort of stole from Hegel and reformatted uh, to take to the world uh, but it was all a system of oppressor versus oppressed uh, of a belief that progress happens through conflict and all of that has been passed down so from from Marx we go to uh, uh, the neo Marxists and the young Hegelians and the uh, we see the, the the Frankfurt School of Thought, which is talked about a lot in the the CRT conversation, uh, uh, especially in our school systems. Uh, and then that went into a lot of radical voices during the uh, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. It eventually got to um, uh, the the birth of liberation theology in the Catholic Church in the 1950s, uh, which was sort of a, a hybrid between Marxism and Catholicism. And then the uh, birth of the Black Liberation Theology Church in America with James Cone uh, and his writings and work. And and you know CRT critical race theory is essentially a secularized version of James Cone's writings on Black liberation theology. Um, and, and that, uh, that worked its way. And eventually, you know, uh, the progressive church grabbed a hold of that in a more modern sense in the form of social justice. And all of these things kind of goes by different names. But as I point out in the book, it's sort of this hydra. It's this sort of, you know, these tentacles that come out of this main structure that is critical thought and critical theory. Uh, but it has all these different expressions from today. You know, we see critical race theory. We also see critical queer theory, which on the surface are, are essentially the same the same ideologies, just with a different idea of who is being oppressed within the structure. And so, um, you know, it's important that as Christians, we, we kind of understand all of these things so that we can begin to, uh, um, you know, untangle uh, this, this tapestry uh, of deception that's there. Yeah. And one of the major threads of that, and you <clears throat> suggested this early on when you were summarizing, you mentioned that uh, part of the line of thought is that it, it, part of the intention, rather, is to elevate Jesus's humanity over his divinity, reducing Christ from from the Son of God, from the Redeemer, to to maybe just a wise social justice activist. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I left that out of kind of the sequencing. So after the Enlightenment, and this this actually connects a lot with the seeker sensitive movement today and the the response to postmodernism in more uh, recent years, is that the, after the Enlightenment there was a major change in the world, and that change was that uh, a lot of the um, you know more um, folklore type of beliefs really died off because there was a push for reason and logic as sort of the highest. Uh, um, uh, attributes to obtain to as humanity. We saw the birth of the scientific method. We saw some of the greatest philosophers of of, of human history sort of arise out of that time period. And and you know, uh, mankind I think began to um, really focus a lot more on on uh, a critical understanding of um, the the workings of history and the world and the economy and science and these things. And so there was a lot of great things that came out of that, but there was certainly some negative things that happened as well. And and the Bible and theology was essentially caught up in the middle of that because we had people that, um, for the first time, we're starting to look at Scripture and say, wait a minute, now that we understand the scientific method, now that we understand um, reason and logic, and we apply that to Scripture, what we're seeing here is we're seeing all these mir- these miracles that took place. And we don't see miracles today in this way. And so, therefore, this has to be myth or this has to be fable in some form or some sort of exaggeration. And so they began this quest for trying to figure out what they called 
the true history or the true biography of Jesus if you cut away what they believe were these miraculous sort of mythical elements. Now, of course, as a believer today, I believe that that the the whole of God's word is is true and it's useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. But they began to separate those things out. And uh, it essentially was they they were going to take the red letters of Scripture and really cut away a lot of the other uh, descriptive narratives of Christ, especially the miraculous elements, and some went as far to even get rid of his divinity. And so what we saw was this birth in what was known as the historical Jesus biographies, and there was literally hundreds of these that were written. Um, and that deeply impacted theology. A lot of them came out of Germany, uh, but the, the, their their reach and their um, their impact came all the way to America and impacted some of our theological systems and structures here. And they're still impacting our Bible colleges to this day, where we see an elevation of Jesus's humanity over his divinity, where Jesus becomes more of this great social justice warrior rather than the savior of the world. Yeah. And along those lines, one of the ways in which the left likes to, uh, well, shall we say, weaponize their version of Jesus against biblical Christians is to claim, oh, well, Jesus hung out with sinners and the socially marginalized in his time. So if he were alive today, he'd be hanging out with the LGBT community, the Black Lives Matter movement, transgender activists, and so on. But Lucas, aren't they missing, or perhaps intentionally ignoring, the point that Jesus hung out with sinners not because he supported or approved of their sins, but to call them to change, to show the way out of their sin. We never see one time in Scripture Jesus affirm behavior that Scripture demonstrates as unrighteousness or against God or sin. We never see him affirm that. We see him love people, and I'm a big advocate of loving people. And I believe that you know what Scripture tells us is that Jesus came in grace and truth. And so... Any doctrine or any position that we take, if it's going to be like Jesus, if we're going to truly take the word seriously in Ephesians 5, where it says to be imitators of God, imitators of Christ, then what we need to do is we need to actually imitate him. And what did he do? He came in grace and truth. And what we see is that oftentimes when we fall into error as believers, uh, it is usually either elevating gr- a concept of grace over truth or a concept of truth over grace. If you on- if you uh, elevate a concept of grace over truth, you will become a progressive. Um, you will affirm uh, and accept every behavior and and really um, you know get to the point where you don't even acknowledge sin or depravity anymore or any sort of absolute truth in the universe. Uh, if you elevate truth over over grace or mercy, you'll eventually become a bigot. You'll become a Pharisee, um, and both are both are an error. Uh, what Jesus did is he came with both, and so we see that Jesus is able to simultaneously um, call out sin while he's still um, granting value and dignity to somebody as being created in the image of God while still showing them and leading them to who God has truly called them to be through a life of repentance and and really submitting to his lordship. And it, I think that we as, as just people, we struggle with the paradoxical nature of that. And so we have a tendency to fall into either one camp or the other of either, you know, uh, progressive or Pharisee. And and we we fail to see the wisdom in Jesus embracing both grace and truth wholeheartedly and actually leading people into a deeper relationship with God. You have a chapter, and this ties in with what you were just talking about. You have a chapter called True Religion and the New Morality of the Left. Can you talk a little bit more 
about how the left has actually not embraced moral relativism, but they've actually fabricated a new but false morality of their own. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, we think about the left a lot of times as a godless party, and that was because during the, I believe it was the Obama administration, they actually rewrote the party platform of the Democratic Party, and they removed the word God out of the party platform. They made a big deal that, you know, that that sort of now we're the godless party with this. We want to be, you know, affirming to all people and inclusive of all people, so we felt like it's important to remove this. Well, the language has sort of changed on the left in recent years. I think they realized that that wasn't a very successful strategy. It didn't do what they thought they were going to do. And after you know Trump was elected, they realized that, oh, maybe this country cares a lot more about what people believe about religion and faith than what we thought they did. And so they began, I think, sort of systematically um, positioning themselves within the the left, within the the sort of the Democratic Party platform um, to, to show um, what what they would hope would be a perceived moral superiority. And so, you know, there's some people on the right today that they they wrongly think, well, the left doesn't have any morals. That's not true. The left has different morals. And, you know, we see that in things. I think it was, you know, Bernie Sanders that that stated that the, the government's role in the COVID-19 crisis, he called it an absolute, you know, moral imperative. Basically, that the government has an imperative, moral imperative to get involved and to do for to make decisions for people by lockdowns and all these different things, because we know as the government what's better for people than what they know themselves. So their moral framework is not freedom. It, their moral framework is not personal liberty and empowerment. Their moral framework is that the the government has to decide for people because people aren't smart enough, you know, and and wise enough to decide for themselves. Um, we see, uh, uh, you know, uh, Pelosi's made some similar statements about the, the America's moral authority on the the COP twenty six climate summit. Uh, we saw Clinton use the term uh, moral crisis, uh, Hillary Clinton to describe climate change. Um, and and of course, you know, uh, Ilhan Omar has used has warned of an immigration crisis and not the way that we would think today because of an open border. That is the true immigration crisis, but a, a and really an illegal immigration crisis. But the that we would lose our moral high ground if we stopped allowing people to freely come into this country, even if it meant coming in illegally. And so this is a new moral that the left has presented. It's a moral that is rooted in socialist thought, that's rooted in communist behavior, uh, and really tyrannical you know, stance uh, from the government. But this they are uh, projecting and presenting as a new moral high ground. And if you don't understand these things, then you must be immoral. You must be, you know, really part of the unrighteous, you know, class. And so in, for the first time ever that I am aware of in human history, probably since um, the, you know, we could argue the second or third century Rome, Christians are being presented as immoral and actually less moral than the world. And this is this is very very important that people understand this. In in Rome, there was a time where Christians were accused of incest because they called each other brothers and sisters in Christ, and they were married. Um, there was there was uh, uh, times where Christians were accused of ungodly behavior and perversion because they wouldn't allow unbelievers to come into their their uh, communion sessions when they were partaking communion together, and so they were accused of having some sort of you know sort of strange you know intimate relationships because they called communion a love feast and that they only allowed other Christians to participate in this. 
Uh, they were accused of, um, you know, tearing down the economy because of uh, they saw so many people were losing their businesses that, that were making idols and making, uh, you know, all sorts of kind of, uh, um, you know, of sacrifices and objects for worship, pagan worship that exists in the temples. And that business was tanking because so many people were coming to Christ. And so they were accusing Christians of destroying the economy in Rome at the time. So it's really for the first time that I'm aware of since Rome, we have Christians that are now being presented as we are the immoral ones because people don't actually understand the the true morality of the gospel and the absolute truth of the word of God. And they are they are positioning Christians as the enemies to the state. And I think that this is definitely something that we have to keep our watch our eyes on very closely. One of these ideas that you address, and you mentioned this, referred to in a moment ago when you talked about the the proper role of Christians in relation to the state. Uh, in the book, you you note that the left wants woke Christians who side with the state and are subservient to it. And you write also, well, like St. Paul, that believers should respect and honor lawful authority, but reject unlawful authority that tries to hijack our personal liberties. And that's exactly what happened during the COVID pandemic, wasn't it? Absolutely. I, and, you know, where the, the argument against this oftentimes, people are going to point to Romans 13. And it, it's interesting. You had you had so, you know, so many people um, during during COVID who were completely against the um, the inclusion of faith within the state. We're all of a sudden making the argument that if you really love Jesus, that you would follow Romans 13 and you would obey everything that we're saying about the lockdowns and masks and everything else. And so, you know, and this is this this shows kind of this double uh, the double standards of the left is that, you know, uh, religion, when it's convenient for them, they want it added in um, to to the government conversation, to the status conversation. Uh, when it's not convenient for them, they're going to silence it. So they don't want prayers in school. Uh, they don't want anybody addressing what the Bible has to say about gender or sexuality. Uh, but when it's convenient to try to twi- twist a, a scripture to, to get Christians to do what you want them to do, then they're going to talk about the Bible and they're going to talk about faith. Romans 13 is the passage that talks about that, you know, it starts off, it says everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. And it goes on and kind of dictates what this looks like. And and it's it's argued that this is sort of this blanket um, uh, this blanket command that you always have to obey the government. What we see in Scripture is we see tremendous examples of uh, of what would be called civil disobedience. We see this in the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see it with Daniel himself. We see it in the in uh, the book of Acts with uh, Peter and John. Um, you know, going out immediately after the government has told them to stop preaching, and they go out and they start preaching again. Uh, we see this with the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts. We see it in his letters. You know, that's displayed. Uh, we see this, of course, at times with Jesus himself, that although he was respectful and uh, he operated in power and he followed the Lord first and foremost uh, in, in everything that he did, even if it meant going against the, uh, um, you know, and rebelling against the the nature of, of the rules and regulations of man. And so, you know, the Bible tremendously supports civil disobedience. Romans 13 is talking about a government that exists that has the best interests of its people in mind. It's not talking about a tyrannical government. It's talking about a government, specifically it says, that a government that punishes those who do wrong. We live, we live in a government today, at least with this administration, that is getting away from punishing those who do wrong. In fact, uh, we, we see you know, the, the political nature to the, um, the United States justice system and the, and the FBI and different things has, has completely you know, showed its cards here in the last few years. Uh, and this is we've also see in Romans 13 that it's talking about a government um, that uh, protects people who do righteousness. 
And we don't see that in our government today. And so the, the government of Romans 13 that we are commanded to obey is one that is actually set up. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily a Christian government. Uh, and for the record, I'm not, I'm not for a theocracy. Uh, we left England for a reason. But I am for a government that truly understands what is righteous and what is unrighteous, and they punish wrongdoers, and they support those who do right, and they protect them, uh, and they protect its sovereignty. And that is something that we are seeing really uh, lost more and more every day in America. And I think it's very important that as, as, as citizens, first and foremost, and as Christians as well, uh, that we do everything we can to see that type of government restored here in this country. Your book's full of a lot of thought-provoking gems, which I'd like to mention a few of, like this one where you write that progressive or woke Christians, instead of deconstructing culture to better align with the truth, have deconstructed faith in order to better reach the culture. I think that's brilliant. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I, I think that you know this idea of, of deconstruction, if, if we're going to say there's any biblical model for deconstruction. It's really not called deconstruction at all. It's, it's called repentance. And I should constantly be deconstructing my way of thinking, if you will, in order to grab a hold of God's way of thinking. That's the whole nature of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that we trust in the Lord you know, with all our heart and that we lean not on our own understanding, that we, that we acknowledge his ways over our ways, right? That's the nature of that passage. And so, uh, but what we've done instead is that we have chosen to deconstruct his word in order to align uh, and sort of bend the, the scriptures to line up with uh, whatever is in vogue in culture today. And so uh, we, we've seen, you know, I've seen TikTok influencers that are, are are taking the stance that Jesus must have been transgender because he wore a tunic and that's a lot like a dress. And this is like a serious, you know, a serious stance that they're taking, you know. Uh, we had, uh, and I can't remember what university, if it was Oxford or Cambridge, uh, but there was a uh, there was a you know famous um, uh, a doctoral uh, student that presented his dissertation in theology that that Jesus was transgender because when the when the Roman soldier pierced his side he opened up a gaping hole in his side where he bled and that's a lot like female genitalia and so therefore Jesus at that moment became trans and he transitioned and he took on both genders so that he could identify with all people and this is obviously heretical it's it's really disgusting it's asinine it's a terrible argument to start with it's not logical but we have elevated those types of statements and tried to bend now those are radical examples but we're seeing this at a much smaller scale even you know some people that are probably still within at least dancing on the edges of orthodoxy um you know we we saw recently a guy like andy stanley who i've respected in years past for a lot of his you know brilliant commentary on on leadership and these things i think as a lot of the christian world has and he's making statements that applauding the faith of of the lgbt community that comes to his church because you know there's so many people that are against them and it just shows how great their faith is in the lord if they're willing to keep showing up at church and he wishes he had more you know people like them at his church and there was never a statement of i'm glad you're here so that you know we can we can show you who jesus is and and that that faith that you're feeling that's drawing you there that that's there for a reason because that's the holy spirit working on your life and and i'm thankful for your desire in the lord but he wants to take you all the way to knowing him as Lord and Savior and really repenting of this this life and everything else. There's none of those that mentioned there. You know, he stopped short of that. And so we're seeing that deconstruction framework start to work really in what was once some very strong Orthodox pastors and churches 
that that now I think we're finding that that we can't trust everyone who says that they called upon the name of Jesus. And this is really what's what the point of my book is, because you have to ask, which Jesus are you referring to? Are you referring to the woke Jesus, the Jesus of black liberation theology, the Aryan Christ, the, the historical Jesus? Or are you referring to the biblical Christ that we see presented throughout the scriptures? Another interesting idea that you raise in the book is this relationship of critical race theory to woke Christianity. You explain really well what CRT is all about and how progressive Christians inject that into the church. I think my listeners have a pretty good handle on CRT, but could you give them a quick overview of why it has no common ground, as you put it, with real Christianity? You know, I think one of the greatest challenges with critical race theory and in and trying to um uh, trying to marry that to the Christian faith is that critical and really critical theory of all kinds. Um, when you take on a critical expression, it robs you of the ability to ever be able to to suffer for Christ. Um, so all suffering in the context of critical race theory or critical queer theory or whatever we, ins- we insert into that um, is is because of some sort of human demographic or or cultural marker it's because of your skin color your your race your country of origin your immigration status your financial status and so when you are persecuted that persecution is always filtered through a human cause a human systemic oppression a human reason and it's never attributed to what the bible says persecution comes from and it's because they hated him first and therefore they hate us as a result of that the hatred that i experience as a christian which i've received plenty of um that i don't receive that because people just don't like me i receive that because people don't like the lord and i don't ever even take it personally and I, I haven't talked about this a whole lot more. i've been assaulted twice uh, I've had I've been in uh, foreign countries with guns pointed at me, and look, there's a lot of believers out there on the front lines that have had it way worse than me. But not one thing that I've ever had happen to me as a Christian was as a result of somebody hating me. It was never personal. It was because they hated Christ, they hated what I stood for, they hated that I was I was siding with the Word of God or I was standing up for Jesus, and as a result, they they took that out upon me. In critical race theory, it flips that on its head. It ignores any sort of, of position on, on how people feel about God, and it's all about me. It's all about you. It's all about you know these these uh, these sort of really um, um, uh, pious, self righteous egocentric ideas that we have about ourselves and and ways of dividing people over class and 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 culture and it, it really is antithetical to Christianity in every way uh, at the risk of giving away any spoilers in your final chapter you talk about the most important and final distinction between wokeism and biblical Christianity can you tell us what that most important distinction is because I thought this was an especially interesting insight. Oh, and now, now you're going to put me to the test here of uh, of jumping uh, <laughs> jumping through my own book. Did you have a quote there you wanted me to speak on specifically? As you put it, those who subscribe to woke ideology can only ever suffer for their own sake. Oh yeah, so so kind of kind of building upon where I was just going. So yeah, so so what we see, and that, that's really kind of building upon where I was. So the suffering of wokeism is always for me. It's always going to be one of those those exterior markers you know, upon my life. And it robs, it not only robs myself of the ability to suffer for Christ, but it also robs God of the glory that we can give him when we suffer for him. Uh, when we look at the early church, you know, you read accounts like um, uh, Ignatius or or one of these early uh, uh, Christian uh, um, 
stories and testimonies of of suffering that they went through for Jesus. And you see people who are, they're literally, they can't wait. I mean, you know, Ignatius talks about how he cannot wait. And he was a little bit overzealous in my opinion, but it's a great example where he's like, he's, he says he can't even wait for the, for the, the animals within the amphitheater when he's thrown out to his death to begin to crunch his bones and tear the sinew apart in his body for the sake of Jesus so that he can he can suffer with those who have gone before him in Christ and really give glory to God through his death and his, you know and really through his life and death in that way. Now, we might look at that and go, "Hey, you know what? He's he's a little overzealous there to get into the ring and be persecuted." But but the the that show it should tell us something. It should show us the position of the early church. They were not afraid of persecution. They were not afraid of oppression. If the world oppresses me for Jesus, so what? This life is temporary. This life is but a vapor. Um, it is a it is a, a light and momentary. Paul calls it, and I should be I should be praising God when I go through. It doesn't mean that we run and, and to to you know uh, go be first in line to experience persecution. I don't have a death wish. I don't want somebody to you know to to beat me or to to stone me or something like that. We're not becoming masochistic about this, but but if it happens. We should be delighted that we're given the opportunity. We see the reward in the book of Revelation and, and of course, throughout the scriptures for those who have given their lives to Christ. And if that, the worst they can do, I always tell people, is kill you. And when you're in Christ, that's not so bad. And, and look, this is a radical stance for probably a lot of people, but I believe that Christianity is a radical faith. And when you really understand what Jesus did for us, the least I can do is live for him regardless of what that means. I'm not in a hurry to leave this earth. I hope that the Lord gives me as much time on planet earth to be able to proclaim his name as possible. And I would love it to have supernatural deliverance over any attempt of persecution in my life. Um, but no matter what comes, I believe that God is faithful and that our lives uh, and our testimony for him in this in this life is not in vain and that I would not want to rob God because I in heaven I can't give God my suffering for his name's sake that's only something that I can give him praise in on earth uh, in heaven I'm just praising him for the victory that we have but here on earth for a limited time I have the ability to praise him in suffering and the CRT message robs the believer of that and it robs God of that The book is obviously mostly about the problems with the left's version of Christianity, but where can conservatives like you and I go wrong as well? Uh, you alluded to this earlier when you mentioned the Pharisees. Are we in danger as conservatives of a little bit of self-righteousness or expecting conservatism alone to save us? Yeah, I think that that's a that's a great point, and and it's it's one I honestly don't get to talk about as much uh, because people don't tend to ask me that as much. But I, I've been very outspoken that we have to be uh, we have to be very vigilant as as Christian conservatives that we don't fall into error ourselves. We see a rise in legalism, and I believe that legalism tends to result from a uh, a season of what probably theologically we would call licentiousness, basically lawlessness. So we've seen this rise in lawlessness. We have, uh, you know, people, um, uh, you know, we, we have tr transgenderism, you know, coming after our children and we have drag shows in churches and we have, you know, all the things that's going on in culture today. 
um, corruption, the government, corruption in the medical community, you know, um, corruption in churches, all of this. And so what happens? Well, followers of God have a tendency to get, you know, sort of uh, uh, zealous about their faith in this and, and for good reason. Um, but if they're not careful, it can push them into legalism. And so I believe that we're actually seeing a rise in legalism right now as we are also seeing a rise in licentiousness. And I think that 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 Christians who understand grace and truth, that we have to kind of balance our heart against that and recognize that there's errors that happen on both sides. I think we're also seeing errors in the conservative movement by making allegiances with certain people that are not truly conservative in their ideology. They're just a different shade of progressive. So, um, you know, and I'm, I, I, I obviously name a lot of names in the book, um, but, you know, just for a recent example, I think it was Charlize Theron uh, made a big statement about, you know, and I, I won't use her language because, you know, it was, it was obscene, but she made a statement about that she was going to mess anybody up that came out against the trans movement. And then so Megyn Kelly, who, you know, for a lot of people has been a conservative hero, um, she comes up on her podcast and says, you know, oh, yeah, well, I've said stuff about the transgender movement. Do you want to come mess me up? You know, and so, again, not using the, their language that that they were using was a little bit bolder. Um, and there was a lot of conservatives that said, oh, Megan stood up. We're so glad. Well, if you read Megan's whole statement, you know, and listen to what she said, what she says is that she's against the transgender movement coming against children and for, you know, uh, drag shows that are that are welcoming, you know, kids of all ages and encouraging children to participate in all these different things. And she calls that out, rightly so. But then she goes on to say that as an adult, I've participated in all sorts of drag shows and I've I've had fun as an adult going and watching people perform. And there's a lot of great ways that this can happen, but it's just not a place for kids. And what we find out is that, you know, this is really just a different form of liberalism, a different form of progressivism that's that's happening there. And although she is condemning um, this radicalized form that we're seeing in a Hollywood actress, which is not uncommon, um, she's not going all the way and actually proposing any sort of conservative thought that's actually going to help this nation or bring us back to the Lord or, you know, increase our understanding. And so, you know, it appears like a self uh, a self-righteous position. When in fact, what we see is it's it's really just as morally bankrupt. It's just not as uh, um, you know uh, overt in in its morally uh, um, uh, uh, in that bankruptedness, if we will. So um, you know these are these are things that we have to make sure who we're making allegiance with and and who we're walking alongside. Uh, that we that the, the gospel as as believers and I would say also as conservatives, we sh- we should never have to compromise. And I think that that all compromising does is is it takes us away from the goal and the finish line. And and there might be times that we have to you know um, etch away at certain policies. We saw that to some extent uh, with leading up and to, to the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and still what we're doing in certain states with um, you know how many how many weeks can abortions happen and those things. Uh, and and I understand there's some strategy there, but I think that from a from a from an ideological standpoint, the people that we are locking arms with, we need to ensure that they're really on our side. We've been talking a lot about these political and ideological threats and cultural threats, too. But isn't there really a whole other level behind this? And that is the spiritual level. Even though we have to engage these issues on a political level, aren't we ultimately really talking about spiritual warfare? And I bring this up because I love the fact that you have a section in your book about putting on the full armor of God, uh, which is something I'm frequently encouraging people to do. Tell us why why we need to put on the full armor of God and how people can go about doing that. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite sections in the book. And, you know, when you think about um, the armor of God, I think a lot of people, they they tend to see that passage in Ephesians as, as sort of a... Um, 
you know, almost more of like a kid's Sunday school lesson, you know, where the kids, they make the little belt of truth out of cardboard and, 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 you know, paper, and they come out of Sunday school at the end of the day, and they ha- they're all dressed up, you know, it's sort of this craft that the kids will do. And I think that very few adult Christians really take this passage very seriously to heart. This was not written for, for, you know, certainly children could benefit from it, but this was written to the church. It's just as important as any other passage of scripture, any other letter that we have from, from the apostles. And so um, what we see is that if you actually walk out the armor of God, it prevents you from falling into the errors that we're seeing today. You could not become a progressive Christian if you actually put on the armor of God. Why is that? Well, it starts with the belt of truth. What is truth? It shows that it's objective, that it's absolute, that it's eternal. Uh, we see that as Christians, that there is a such thing as orthodoxy. There is a right teaching, a right way of thinking. There is a true gospel, and that is all encompassed in this idea of the belt of truth. The belt of truth implies that that if you don't buckle the belt of truth, that you could fall into deception. Um, what the woke gospel is presenting is that you get to decide your own truth, that everybody's truth can be a little bit different, and that's okay, and you do you. Well, that go that contradicts the idea of a belt of truth. We also see the, the breastplate, breastplate of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it does two things. First of all, it defines our position in Christ, that, that we are no longer just sinners saved by grace, but we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus as a result of what Jesus did. It also reminds us of the righteousness that, that, that we are called to live to, to basically to be holy as he is holy. And that, again, it, it um, uh, really repudiates the, the doctrine of the left and and this ideology that they are trying to promote that um, that all of these you know really bankrupt behaviors are morally acceptable or or even affirmed by God uh, because of His inclusive nature. Uh, we see the readiness of the gospel of peace that our feet are fitted with this. This reminds us that evangelism matters. That universalism is not true. If universalism was true, there'd be no point to evangelism. The fact that our feet are supposed to be fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace means that 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 time is of the essence, and we have to take this message to those that that is important that that they hear that uh, uh, about the cross and that God is no longer counting men's sins against them. Um, the shield of faith reminds us that there's a very important real battle that's taking place in the spiritual dimension and that it is through God's power made perfect in our weakness that we're able to defend ourselves. And of course, we see with the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, we could go on and on and look at these, that that there is a uh, uh, that there is a thing called salvation, that there was I was once dead and now I am made alive through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and faith in his name and the sword of the spirit that we we are in a battle and that there is an offensiveness to the nature of God that takes place in order to protect us from these attacks. And on a practical level, well, not that putting on the full armor of God is not practical, but on, on a more practical level, you close your book with some suggestions of things that readers can do in their own daily lives to combat this subversive momentum within Christianity and to rescue our churches from the false religion of wokeness. Could you give listeners a couple of examples, a couple of practical things that they can do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to start by not ignoring the problems within the church. And, you know, we're talking about these things. It's very easy to start talking about this as from culture. And really the nature of my book, I mean, yes, it's it's identifying this is what's going on in culture. But, but really what I'm speaking out against is I'm speaking out against the invasion of woke 
wokeism that is taking place within the church. And so we have to not ignore this. If you're in a church and your pastor's giving a message about white privilege or 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 white guilt or or critical race theory or critical queer theory or your church is, you know, um uh not celebrating, you know, if they didn't celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade last summer, I mean, these things should be should be red flags to us and we can't ignore that. You need to talk to an elder. You need to talk to a leader. You know, if you're just started attending that church, you don't need to talk to anybody. Just go and go find a new place. If you've been there a while, have the conversation. Let them know that you're concerned about this. You know, I'm not for people just leaving poorly, but there's a right way to leave a church. And it starts with confronting this issue and saying, look, I, I heard this. I'm concerned that you guys have walked away from biblical orthodoxy uh, over these issues. And uh, and we need to have a conversation about this. I want to hear not just from one person. I want to hear from the elders. What do the elders think about this? Because some people might not, they might not be aware of these things. If they're not educating themselves on this, they might not know what's going on. And so you have to do you know, your homework there, have the conversations. Um, you know, we need to personally grow in the truth of God's word. We need to make sure that we're edifying our own heart, you know, in the truth as we go and not, you know, I, I, of course, I'd like everybody to read my book, Woke Jesus, or my last one, The Christian Lab. But but even more than reading this, another author's books, we need to get in the word ourselves and really, you know, ensure that we know the gospel through and through and that we can defend our faith in that way. Uh, we need to make sure that our anger and frustration with this this uh, uh, licentiousness and and you know progressive um, uh, avalanche that we're seeing all around us does not cause us to lack love. Jesus warns that that there's going to be a time where th- that that love will grow cold in most, and so we need to make sure that we're not included in that, and that we still find a way to love people despite our disagreement with their ideology or our stance against the, the, the position that they're taking. Um, and, and I would say if you're giving to an organization or a college, um, you know, and you need to figure out what you're doing. If you're giving, if you're an alumnus someplace and you're giving to, um, you know, a, a Bible college that you went to, you need to know what's, what is their position on, on, on marriage, sexuality, gender? Do they have a, a, a DEI uh, department that's that's managing diver- diversity, equity, inclusion, basically acting as a critical race theory, you know, hub for the school. You need to make your voice heard in that. And if and if people won't change, if they won't take that seriously, take your dollars elsewhere. Listeners, I highly recommend you pick up a copy of Woke Jesus: The False Messiah Destroying Christianity from Humanix Books. It's a short book, but it's not a shallow book of pop spirituality. It's very well written, very intelligent book with a lot of important ideas and useful historical explanation. I think every Christian needs to read this to understand what's happening in our churches today. And for that matter, I would encourage every non-believer to read the book too, because they need to understand the ways in which this woke perversion of Christianity is changing their world also for the worse too. Uh, Lucas, apart from attending Influence Church, if they're in the Indiana area, where can people best keep up with what you're doing? Absolutely. So they can head over to lucasmiles.org. Uh, that's L-U-C-A-S and then miles, just like you're driving miles in your car, .org. And uh, they can find out more. Uh, if they're interested in having me come and speak in an event or the church near them, they can fill a lot of requests there at that uh, place. I'm pretty easy to find on social media at either at lucasmiles or at Miles on certain platforms. Um, and I'm going to be you know, traveling all around uh, this year uh, talking about the book and, and hopefully uh, can connect with people across the country with this. But if they haven't ordered a copy yet, uh, they can get the book, of course, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or on my own website. Lucas Miles, thanks for bringing your insights today to the Right Take Podcast. Please keep up the great work. Thank you so much for having me. 
The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.